You are listening to the Mile Straight Podcast. For more information on Mile Straight or to watch a video version of this podcast, visit www.milestraightbc.org. The speaker for today is our senior pastor, Tom Goss. So today I want us to answer a question, and the question is, is Jesus really the one? I mean, is he really the Messiah? Is he really the Son of God? Is he really the Savior of the world? Is Jesus really the one? Did you know there are a lot of people asking that question today? A lot of people on the outside of the church, but did you know there are even people inside the church who are asking that question? People who are wondering, you know, they just get caught up in life. They hear different things on TV. They read different things in, in whatever uh, means they may read things. And, and they get confused to some degree. And they begin to question. They begin to doubt. And they begin to wonder, is Jesus really the one? Really the one? Today I want us to answer that question. And I, and I want to approach it from two different perspectives. I want to look from the perspective of looking from say 800 or longer years before Jesus actually was born <clears throat> where God began to lay out for us what his life would be like. What would take place in the life of Jesus Christ. The people of the Old Testament were looking for the Messiah to come and God was telling them through the prophets and through the, the books of the Bible that were being written back then. God was telling them you can look for the Messiah to come and here's what you can expect to see when he comes. So I want to look at it from that perspective, the prophetic side. I want us to see the prophecy revealed through the men of God, the prophets of God. And then I want us to jump to the other perspective. And I want us to see, okay, the prophecy was made. If the prophecy doesn't come true, then everything's false. We've got a big problem on our hands. So then was the prophecy fulfilled? When Jesus came, was the prophecy fulfilled? Was this something that the prophet said and it never actually transpired? Or was it something they said through the working of the Spirit of God in their lives? And when Jesus came, we can look and say, wow, it was actually done. Now, we're not going to cover <clears throat> excuse me, all the prophecies of Jesus today. There are over 200. In fact, we tried to do that. We would be here for a long, long time. And as you can see, my voice is already going. So there's no way we're going to cover all the prophecies. But I would like to pick out just six that I consider to be really big, really well-known prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus and see those prophecies revealed and then look to the other side and see those prophecies fulfilled as well, okay? If you've ever read the Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye, uh, as he co-authored the series, you may be familiar with an illustration I'm about to use. Uh, in the second book, I believe it is, Tribulation Force, he writes an illustration that I think is incredible. My wife sent it to me uh, three months ago, probably, and said, hey, you need to read this again. This is really good. And I did, and hence uh, we've kind of used it to develop a study for ourselves today. But if you're familiar with it, you won't hear it word for word. I've adapted it to our situation, and uh, so I've changed it up somewhat. But uh, you may be familiar. I like to give credit where credit is due. And here's the illustration. To me, it's an amazing thing to think of how you can be anywhere in the world just about, you can address an envelope, put a letter inside, and say you were mailing it to me. 
You put it in the proper place for it to be delivered. And out of 8 billion people over the planet, somehow that envelope will find its way to me. Now, coming from some countries, it'll take longer than it will from others. But it's amazing to me how that works, how, how a letter can leave. We had missionaries with us in the first service from Romania. How they could send a letter to the states and it come to the very person, the individual to whom it is addressed. Out of 8 billion people, somehow they begin to eliminate and weed out people till they get to the one person that is the proper recipient of that letter. Now, how does that work? Well, first of all, if you were addressing that letter to me, you would write USA on it. And if you put USA on the envelope, then all of a sudden you've narrowed the scope from 8 billion people, give or take, down to about 332 million. Now, that's quite a drastic change, right? All of a sudden, instead of trying to weed through 8 billion people, now you're down to only 332 million. Now, that's still a pretty big task, right? I mean, trying to find a single individual among 232 million is quite a task. That's, that's quite an assignment for somebody. But if you go a step further and you write on the envelope TN, Tennessee, then all of a sudden you've narrowed it again from 332 million down to 6.6 .6 million. Okay, it's a little bit more, more reasonable to think that possibly out of 6.6 .6 million you could find the appropriate person. If you then put the city name and zip code on the envelope, you narrow it down even further. I don't know exactly how far our reach is for the Saudi Daisy Post Office, but I imagine we're looking at somewhere between 20 and 40,000 people potentially. So you've narrowed it then from 8 billion people to start, now down to somewhere between 20 and 40,000 people. Now, it's pretty amazing to narrow it the scope that, that far. But then you can do something else. You can put my street name on it. And if you put my street name on it, all of a sudden you've narrowed it down from, say, 40,000 people down to 12 people. I live on a very small street. There are only six houses on our street, and there's approximately 11 or 12 people, all of us with the exception of one family. Our children are grown and they're out of the house. And so we, not many people on our street, not many at all, 11, 12 people. Once again, it's much more reasonable to conclude that, well, with only 12 people, then there's a really good chance that they'll get the letter to the appropriate person. If you then put my house number on it, you put the street name and my house number, then you've narrowed it from 12 people down to two people, just my wife and me, two of us. If you put my name on the top, all of a sudden I am the only person in the entire world that should receive that letter. That's a pretty incredible thought. From 8 billion one person. What's more amazing is that God does this very thing, but on a much bigger scale. God, in directing our attention and our hearts to His Son, the Messiah, begins to narrow the scope. Now, He's not only looking at one generation in the world, He's looking at every generation. 
from the very beginning of time to the very end of time. Those who have and those who will live. God begins to narrow the scope through the Old Testament writings, through the prophets of the Old Testament, to direct our attention to the only one throughout all of history and throughout all the future who could be the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ. Now that's pretty incredible. One out of billions and billions and billions of people. So how does he do that? By eliminating everyone else that doesn't qualify. And how does he do that? Through the prophecies that were given to the prophets to be delivered to us. So there are six that I want to address for our understanding this morning. Six that I consider to be somewhat overwhelming to some degree. I think you'll see what I mean as we walk through these. Even though we're probably, most of us are familiar with all of these prophecies, I still think as we think about them and we focus on them, that we're going to begin to get the concept that this is an overwhelming prophecy. So let's start. Number one. The first prophecy is that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Now you think about this. The Messiah would be born of a virgin. I can't think of, and, and certainly I don't know everyone, haven't studied everyone who's ever lived, but I can't think of anyone else throughout time who has ever claimed to be born of a virgin. So then here we go from billions and billions of people down to only one person that can possibly carry the name Son of God. Only one. That was Jesus Christ. So what does the prophecy tell us? Ruth, if you would. Isaiah 7.14 says, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now, how does that happen? That's crazy to think about. But it's so important that it happens exactly the way it's prophesied in the Old Testament. 800 years before Jesus would even be born, Isaiah is telling us that this is going to come to pass. And it's important because if Jesus has a human father, then he also has a sin nature. And if Jesus carries with him a sin nature, it is not possible for him to die for our sin because he has his own to cover. So this is really significant. It's significant that Jesus have a heavenly father, so therefore he is holy, therefore he is God. Prophecy revealed, would the prophecy be fulfilled? Emma? Luke 1, 30-35 And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. 
Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. Isn't that interesting? The angel comes to Mary and says, here's what's going to happen. Mary says, that can't happen. It's not possible. And the angel said, yes, it will happen. And here's the way it's going to transpire. As you read further into the gospel, you understand that it happened exactly as the angel would say. Prophecy revealed. Prophecy fulfilled. Number two. Second prophecy is that the Messiah would be lifted up, would be crucified. Now, this to me is a bewildering thought. It's really out there because we're not talking about just some person. We're not talking about some ordinary individual like you or me that, uh, well, we're fallible, we do things wrong, and therefore punishment would be deserved sometimes. In fact, probably a lot of times. But here we're talking about the perfect, sinless Son of God. And yet, the prophet Isaiah is telling us, you know what? This is going to happen. Jesus is going to be crucified. Now, we look into the, the very first books that were written. We look into the book of, of Numbers to find a foreshadowing of an event that would take place in the life of Jesus. It doesn't specifically tell us here that this is a foreshadowing. This is something that would transpire in Jesus' life. But later, as we see the prophecy fulfilled, we'll see it unveiled. We'll see it very clearly. So, to begin with, Jennifer, if you would, read your passage. Isaiah 53, 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So I jumped ahead of myself. Let me back up. Prophecy number two is that Jesus would be rejected. Jesus would be rejected. And once again, to me, that's an overwhelming thought. It's overwhelming because here we are talking about the Son of God. Now, if you told me that, uh, say, say, someone that was really famous, someone that was really well-known was coming to town, and, and they're loved by all, you know, that's what's expected. They're loved by everyone. They're going to come to town. They're going to make a speech, and everyone's going to welcome them. Well, we wouldn't think too much about that. But to think, then, that God would send His Son from heaven to earth, and that he would come to his people for the purpose of sparing them for all of eternity. One might start to think, well, I mean, this is the Son of God. He's going to be well received. Everyone's going to love him. And yet, God is telling us 800 years before Jesus would be born that that's not what you can expect. What you can expect is for him to be despised. You can expect for the people to reject him. You can expect for the people to turn their backs on him. They will not accept him. Prophecy revealed, would it be fulfilled? Robin? John 1.11 says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Acts 4.11, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. Stone that was rejected by the people. Prophecy number three, the Messiah would suffer 
gravely. Once again, to me, it's an overwhelming thought. That God would allow His Son to come here for the purpose of saving mankind, for the purpose of providing us a means of forgiveness, and yet He would be abused and mistreated. That God's Son would suffer at the hands of sinful men. That doesn't really make sense to me. I'm so thankful that it worked out that way. I'm so thankful that that was God's plan. As we see more of it as we make our way through this study, uh, maybe we'll all come to the place to where we are grateful for that. But the truth is, that plan makes no sense to me. I can't imagine putting my child in harm's way, allowing my child to be abused, to suffer if I had a means to fix it. can't imagine that. And yet God would allow His Son to face such horrible times. As Grant gets into place, he's going to read two passages. The first gives us a, a third-person perspective. It tells us of one who is prophesying what would take place in the suffering of Jesus, how he would be so badly, badly abused. The second one is more of a first-person perspective in that the, the psalmist is beginning to tell us in Psalm 22, he's telling us what Jesus was feeling on the cross as if he is talking for Jesus. He's speaking. You listen to this. This is really amazing. Grant. Isaiah 52, 14 says, Many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Psalm 22, 14 through 17 says, I am poured out like water, and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, and it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You laid me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet, and I can count all of my bones. They stare, and they gloat over me. Wow. The first passage from Isaiah said that his appearance was so marred. He didn't even look recognizable as a human. Jesus would suffer to such an extent that you could not even recognize who he was. Can you imagine God allowing his son to face that? Prophecy revealed... Would the prophecy be fulfilled, Gary? First Peter 2, 21-24. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deficit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered... He did not threaten, but continue entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die into to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Acts 8, 32, 35. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. 
In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Isn't it interesting? That which was prophesied 800 years before Christ came to pass in Christ's life. That he would go to the cross and he would suffer for us. He would be abused at the hands of those whom he had created. We move a step further now. Prophecy number four. The Messiah would be lifted up. The, pro the Messiah would be crucified. Here we see what I mentioned earlier, the foreshadowing that would take place. That that represented something that would take place at a later time in the life of Jesus Christ. Prophecy revealed, Ruth. Numbers 21, 6 through 9. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So as I said, the foreshadowing is taking place here now. Let's see the event actually happen. Prophecy revealed. Prophecy fulfilled. Gabe? John 3, 14 through 16. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So it's interesting that Jesus fulfilled the prophecy, that foreshadowing of what would take place in Old Testament time in his own crucifixion. Once again, it's an overwhelming thought that God would allow his son to be crucified. Let's go a step further. Here we find in prophecy number five some very specific information very specific to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. I mean, it's so specific that here we are years and years before it would actually take place. In fact, uh, up to a thousand years in the second passage that will be read by Grant in just a second. We find God giving us specific information about a little detail that would take place in the crucifixion and death of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Okay, what are we talking about here, Grant? Zechariah 12.10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. And Psalm 34.20 says, he keeps all his bones, and not one of them is broken. Prophecy revealed. Prophecy fulfilled, Emma. John 19, 31 through 37. 
Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Let me stop you just a second. Okay, so here we have a situation. The Romans were very cruel people. The means in which they were putting Jesus to death 